Today's teaching text comes from Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 44. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, friends. Very good to see all of you. Happy Palm Sunday. Uh, feel free throughout the entire talk. We gave you the palms. If you agree with something, you can wave the palm. If you disagree, you can wave the palm. I won't know the difference, and I'll just roll on. Uh, this, is, uh, this is, I mean, so much in here. We're not even going to hit my, one of my favorite disciple moments, the stealing of the cult. Um, do not try this in, in Brooklyn. Like, why are you taking that bike, sir? The Lord needs it. Um, Here we are at Holy Week, and the, the narrative slows down in, in the telling of Jesus' story for, for a reason, because these are some of the most significant moments in not just uh, the story of Christianity, but the story of, of the world. Jesus arriving in Jerusalem, even if you don't happen to be a believer in Jesus, what happens over the next week is one of the most significant sets of events in, in human history. It's uh, what ripples out from this literally changes, changes the world. Uh, the scope of influence that, that runs out from, from this final week of this peasant teacher in this sort of obscure corner of the Roman Empire it doesn't seem like it should have the impact that it does, but Jewish historians, Roman historians are trying to make sense of what, like what, what happened in Jerusalem during, during this week. And for those of us who are seeing through a lens of faith, uh, who trust in Jesus as Savior, as, as King, this is, this is the week where Jesus wins a victory over death. As powerful as that sounds, as dramatic maybe as that sounds, uh, 
that he, he bridges the gap uh, between everything that separates us from, from, from God and begins quite literally a new future for, for the world. That's, that's the week we've arrived at. That's what we're looking at. The gospel of Jesus is, is not good news uh, without this week. Jesus has been showing the kingdom of God. He's been saying this is what the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like these two sons. The kingdom of God is like this field planted in this way. The kingdom of God is like you can see now. The kingdom of God is like you have enough to eat. He's been demonstrating. He's been just describing the kingdom of God. But now he is coming to make a way in for us. Without this week, there's no way into the family, into the kingdom for us. And the week begins beautifully. The, the week begins with cries of Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. Uh, but we know by the end of the week there will be cries to crucify him. The beginning and the end is, is important. I don't know if you guys have this little habit, but if I'm going to read a novel, I like to open the first page and read just the first sentence and see if I'm going to like it. Like, that's not enough, really, but I, like, I feel like if you don't get the first sentence right, then maybe I'm not going to be in for the whole book. It's a very long book. I don't know. What book are you picking up? Let me keep going. Um, the book of Luke begins with the angels uh, uh, singing from heaven uh, in the announcement of the birth of Jesus. Glory to God in the highest heaven. And on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. You remember that at Christmas time? Uh, I, I didn't really notice until, until here at the end. But as, as Jesus enters Jerusalem, the crowds sh- uh, shout something that has some echoes. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. As Jesus comes on the stolen colt into Jerusalem. The angels in the beginning say peace on earth. And the people shout peace in heaven. The man walking into town or riding into town is a bridge between the two. So let's, as we try to do often, enter with our imagination into this moment. It is, it is a moment of, of heightened alert in the city. There's an anticipation of a holiday. Uh, pilgrims are traveling into the city. The Roman rulers and occupiers are certainly uh, more aware of this particular week. Israel's Passover festival, after all, is a celebration of them throwing off the shackles of a powerful empire and walking into a, a freedom that God had, had given them. And so uh, th- if you're the occupying power in, in charge, in Israel, your, your uh, alert is going to be up a little bit during Passover week. Historians tell us that Pontius Pilate, who we're going to interact with a little later this week in this story, would, would most likely have paraded into Jerusalem this very same week as Jesus comes in on the borrowed colt at the head of a column of soldiers, marching a legion from his seaside residence at Caesarea to Jerusalem. To make sure he kept the peace. Bring the soldiers to keep the peace. War horses shaking the ground in order to keep the peace. This is one of the lies we've always believed as human beings. And here comes Jesus on his borrowed donkey. Two parades, very different. From outside observation, this is a very strange way to save the world. And I want to I look at four moments in this last week of Jesus. And 
We've been talking about the bread of life. What does it mean for Jesus to pray? What does it mean for Jesus to fast? What does it mean for us as disciples or apprentices or followers of Jesus to learn to pray, to learn to fast in the way of Jesus? We've been looking at that all all Lent. And I want to look at these culminating moments in Jesus' final week of his prayer where everything has, in a sense, been been leading. What is moving the heart of Jesus in this final week? What, What would you find Jesus himself praying for? What would you find him doing? How how might that teach us to pray? How might it show us how to live? Could we hear an invitation to abundant and eternal life? This happens sometimes, but I woke up this morning with this talk basically finished, and I went through it, and a phrase kept coming into my head and heart that I felt like I was supposed to put in. Um, And it's a phrase I have never really used before, but essentially um, that there are many sages of doubt in our world. People who can articulate very well an alternative way to the way that Christ is demonstrating, living, inviting us into. People who can make cynicism seem like wisdom. People who can make a lack of, uh, who can make faith basically seem like foolishness, who can make doubt sound like sophistication. And, and we all live in the world, right? I, I, I know you guys are moving around the city. You know what life is like here. I'm not, I'm not trying to knock the reality that, that we all live in a pluralistic city and everyone should believe the same thing. I'm not, I'm not saying that at all. But I just believe there may be some this morning uh, that have been under the influence of some sages of doubt. And I think God may want to wake you up this morning to, uh, to an invitation to his love and an invitation to return uh, to, to his truth. So um, I, I, I'm going to mention that a couple more times, but I, I invite you, if, if there's someone that you're giving like a, a deep level of influence in your life, uh, look at their life closely because anyone can talk, really. What, what goes on in their interior? Um, how, how do they handle the crucible of life, because that's what we're about to see Jesus doing. What, what is growing in someone's life, and how does that come out in the moment where they're the most squeezed, where the most pressure is applied to their life? At the heart of the, of the crucible of Jesus' life, you hear him praying for forgiveness, offering mercy, showing love. So I want to look at, at Jesus in his, in his last week. Um, and the first moment I want us to notice is Jesus entering Jerusalem, this, this Palm Sunday moment. To get to Jerusalem, you had to walk up a mountain. And uh, I took my son on, on a, a, a trip to the White Mountains in New Hampshire. Uh, we, we walked like the seven presidential peaks. I was really, really out of shape at this point of life. Um, and I was suffering my way to the top of Mount Washington. And the whole way I kept thinking about those people who I've seen drive by in their cars. And they said, this car has been to the top of Mount Washington, and I just thought how, how not impressive that is. Like, these legs have been to the top of Mount Washington, okay? And I literally almost didn't survive. Lightning storm, I won't get into it, but have you ever come to the top of a mountain? Have you ever endured a long walk and come to the place you were hoping to see, and, and the vista stretches out in front of you? This is the, the journey of the worshipers into Jerusalem. They're climbing up into the city uh, on, on Passover week. 
It was a long and difficult walk. Israel even had a series of songs that they sang as they came into Jerusalem, the Psalms of Ascent. You can find them uh, in the middle of your Bible. And then you have that moment where you finally see the city. It's an accomplishment, a moment of realization, a moment of hope, a moment of culmination. And Jesus has arrived at this uh, epicenter week in Israel's story, the Passover week. I I lived here... 18 years, 17 years, still when I see the city skyline, there's, I have to drive my boys to baseball practice 122 times in one week. And as I go over the Kosciuszko, Kosciuszko, however you pronounce it, bridge on the BQE, no, no, okay, it's Kosciuszko, I know, but I like to say it that way, relax. Um, you look to your left and you can see the whole city stretched out. And it's just, I just want to invite you, whenever you see the New York City skyline, just take a minute and pray for the city. Just take a minute and just whisper a little prayer. That's what Jesus does when he sees Jerusalem here. He prays for the city. I want to invite you, whenever you see the skyline, you're taking off, you're on that bridge, you're at the top of a big building, pray, pray, pray for our city. Jesus, uh, we, see, we see the tears of Jesus. This is the first moment I want us to notice as he looks over Jerusalem. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The people had just been shouting about peace. Pilate is in town with his war horses and his legion to make sure that he keeps the peace. Jesus is weeping. The Son of God moved to tears over this idea of people missing their moment of peace. Of all the different things Jesus done, uh, does, I think it's really interesting to focus on the couple of times where the, the, the scripture tells us that Jesus cries, that he sheds tears. We, we know that famously Jesus wept at Lazarus' tomb, and here we see Jesus weeping over the city of Jerusalem. So he, he, he is brokenhearted over the death of his friend, and he cries, and then he's brokenhearted over the plight of a people, and he cries. So I, I think... The fullness of God dwelling in bodily form is showing us that God is moved by our personal pain, by our contending with death, but also with our collective suffering, with us together as as a city, as the huddled masses. Jesus knows these people are missing their moment. They are missing a revelation of God in their midst. Their hearts are captured by other stories, by other priorities, by other pursuits. They are, and this is one of the hardest things to swallow, they are rejecting mercy. Perhaps because they've imagined a construct of life where that doesn't need to apply to them. And Jesus has the heart of a prophet. And the heart of a prophet isn't always about future telling. The heart of a prophet is often about telling us what the heart of God looks like in in a specific moment. Some of us know what it is to be under the influence of sages of doubt. Sometimes, and there's a seesaw that can happen under this influence. Sometimes you'll be puffed up that really only you understand. And other people just don't see it like you see it. 
or on the other side of the seesaw, you can be beaten down that you're excluded from all that's being discussed. That, you, that this God stuff, these promises, they're for someone else. You just aren't someone who can believe. You're just not built that way. And the sages of doubt will play on your pride or your self-pity. Either you're the only one who gets it or you never will be able to. Beware in your own heart when you see a narrative like that beginning to take shape. We seesaw between pride and self-pity. I had a picture, I, I mentioned this talk was done and this picture came into my mind and I'm sorry for a Lord of the Rings reference. Okay, I'm not Tim Keller. The guy loves Lord of the Rings, and I love him, but I want to say this. You remember the, the guy Theoden in the, in the story, the king who sort of his face has gone gray, and the advisor Grima is in his ear all the time. He's a, he's a sage of doubt, and Theoden's eyes have glazed over, and his heart has grown hard, and he's literally become sort of a, a robot of doubt and fear in, his own, in, in the place of his own inheritance, and I just had a strong picture that some of us today, on this Palm Sunday, that's the reality of our lives. If we could really see into the curtain of our hearts, that's what's going on. We have, been, we have come under the influence of sages of doubt. There are grimas in our life. And the spell needs to be broken. Jesus is looking over Jerusalem and weeping at the moment of his people missing him. Missing the invitation, not sensing his love. Jesus, with the heart of a prophet, can tell the city is wrapped up in things that are not going to bring life. In fact, 40 years from this moment, Jerusalem is indeed going to be destroyed. Was there some wake-up call that could have prevented it? Jesus' heart is broken over that reality, over that possibility. They aren't seeing it. In Matthew's account, uh, he expresses a motherly heart. I wish I could gather you to myself like a hen gathers her chicks. Every time I read that, I picture the, 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 the hen going like this. But I don't think hen's arms are this long. But I still, this, I can't get away. This is how I picture it. You picture it how you need to picture it. But that, right? I mean, well, how does a hen gather her chicks? Okay, whatever. We'll talk about that later. Wave your palms if you agree. Wave them if you disagree. <laughs> the heart of Jesus in this final week is to gather. That's another word I felt the Holy Spirit emphasizing in my heart as I, as I prepared to, to get up this morning, that I want to gather. God is saying, I want to gather. I want to welcome. I want to embrace. I want my children to know they can come home. <laughs> I believe today Jesus wants to do the ministry of gathering. Uh, a few days later, Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem, longing for peace. And a, a few decades later, the Apostle Paul is going to write, he himself is our peace. The heart of Jesus is broken over the pain of the city when we miss God, when we settle for stories that can never bring us life, when we seize upon violence and false power as shows of strength, when we get so caught up in our world that God could, could walk right up to us and we wouldn't even know. He himself is our peace. That's why he showed up in Jerusalem. So I want you to hear the heart of Jesus crying out. See his tears, O oh, Jerusalem, if you knew what made for peace. The second moment I want us to look at is Jesus praying. 
He's just left his, his disciples. At some point, um, there's a, a recording of what's on the heart of Christ as he's praying for, for, uh, for his own life, for his disciples, and for those who would believe in his name uh, after, after them. And it's John 17. It's the passage where our church got its name, Trinity Grace uh, Church. I want you to, to hear this again. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, to see my glory, the glory you have given me, because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. I have, I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them, that I myself may be in them. This prayer is perhaps one of my favorite passages in in all the Bible. It's God praying for us and you getting to listen. I believe this prayer gets answered yes. When Jesus prays for you, the things Jesus prayed for for you get answered yes. And, 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 And I love hearing what is going on in Jesus' heart as he approaches the cross. What is Jesus praying for you? The first thing is that you would and I would experience union with God. This is a way to understand the gospel that forgiveness comes crashing in because what Jesus has done on the cross for us, that he has borne the full weight of the consequences of our brokenness with God. That that forgiveness comes crashing in so we can experience union. The forgiveness isn't just so that we can be clean or morally right or being able in a sense like to stand in, in some ethereal way before God. It's for the sake of union. Forgiveness for the sake of union, that nothing could separate us from God because we're brought into the embrace of family. And he is gathering us together. And that's what's on the heart of Jesus, that you and I, and to me, honestly, I've been saying this for 25 years and it still sounds bananas to me. That we have a share of life in the Trinity that that's the dance you're invited into. That that's the relationship you're invited into. Je- Jesus' prayer is so profound that it almost seems like too much. Like if it wasn't Jesus praying this, you would say, no, nah, this, is, this is a scandal. This is too much. That we would be brought into the type of oneness that Jesus and the Father share. Is it possible for you to fathom that God the Father would see you the way he sees Jesus. Listen, I've had enough coffee with you guys. You've talked to me like so many of us when we imagine God imagining us. One of the first things we think is disappointed. Not quite there. Not reaching my full potential. Da-da-da-da-da, on and on. Can you imagine that Jesus' heart is that you would know you are seen in the same love relationship the Father and Son share? How on earth could this happen? 
here's part of the mystery. It doesn't just happen by the reordering of ideas about God in your head. It's not like, oh, I, I got, I, that's Gnosticism, essentially, like that you get the ideas right in your head and all of a sudden you're just like, and you have it. No, he literally puts his Holy Spirit in us. That this, the, the communication of love between the Father and the Son is so profound, so potent, so real, that it is the third person of the Trinity. That, that's the mystery of our God, three in one. I was trying to explain this to my six-year-old yesterday. And I was like, you know how, I, I was like, you know how like grandma's dog and you are different? Like there's just degrees of complexity and like the dog, and he's like, yes, the dog talks and barks. And I'm like, that's true. And you talk in sentences. And you know how there's a complexity difference there. And I was like, imagine if you went up the line even more and more and more and more and you come to God. And I was like, he was like, how is God three in one? And I was like, I don't know, but this is what it says. And by the end, he was saying sentences to me that were like Trinity sentences. And I was like, yeah, yes, that, that's it. Whatever you're saying now, hang on to that, pal. Jesus is praying that we would know we are immersed into the relationship of Trinity, that we have that share of life with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus is praying. That's what he's come to Jerusalem to win for us. And then the outflow of that Union with God is that we're, we're meant for unity with one another. <laughs> that we're meant to share the joy, uh, the, I don't know, it's almost like hard to describe that, uh, that buzz of connection <laughs> that happens when human beings really share their, their lives with one another, really accept and welcome and love. The, the joy that we, we're meant for is, is to, to share life with our brothers and sisters, that the God type of love, the agape type of love would, would come to define our vertical relationship, but also our horizontal relationships, that we would be made one with God and one with one another. This is the heart of God. Whatever else you want to say, this is what Jesus is praying for in his, in his final week for us to be brought into union with God and to know the joy of unity with one another. So you look across church history and it's like the most complicated family tree splintering in all directions. We're like, you don't like baptism this way? We're gonna start our own church. You don't like Holy Spirit gifts this way? We're gonna start our own church. And it's like, oh, you can just sense the heart of, uh, like Jesus wept over Jerusalem. You could see him weeping over our disunity. Our, our willingness, in a sense, like over and over. We talk about cancel culture like it's new. <laughs> like, look at the Reformation. <laughs> to me, it is such a stabilizing place to go to the prayers of Jesus in his final week. Could you get more significant? Could you get more guaranteed to be answered? And he's saying, I want you to know union with, with, with Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I want you to know unity with one another. And then he doesn't just leave that as a nice prayer. He goes into Jerusalem to become the answer himself. He himself is our peace. He himself is our peace. In the first century, as, as, as the Jesus movement was breaking out over the Roman Empire, uh, and, and Jews and Gentiles were learning to do life together, do you know the place that they came together? It's right here. They came together around the table of the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. He himself is our peace. He is our bridge between us and God, and he is our bridge to one another. And that's the prayer of Jesus on his lips as he moves to the cross. The last moment, each of these moments, there's so much more to say than we're, we're going to say. We're literally just, we're cruising through. 
But the next moment I want you to see is the agony and surrender of Jesus in Gethsemane. This is after the Last Supper. He's given us this meal. Jesus goes to one of his favorite prayer spots. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Have you ever felt something like that? Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you, couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. He's already moving towards surrender in his agony in prayer. When he came back, he, found, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Jesus' friends are giving in to their natural weaknesses. It's like, man, is there a few passages I relate to more than the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, and can you not watch with me one hour? And these are the same guys who got invited to the transfiguration. They weren't asleep. They're like, let's camp here forever. This is fantastic. Love the mountaintop. And here in the darkness of the garden, on the eve of the cross, they're sleeping. They can't hang. They aren't praying. They are dozing off. Jesus is, is, is going to have to face this moment by himself. But in prayer, we see that he, he isn't alone. Um, he is learning in a sense, like he is learning to pray what he taught us to pray. Father, your will be done. May your will be done. You see Jesus literally wrestling. One of the accounts says he sweat drops of blood. So much was his anxiety. So much was his trembling at the reality of what was coming, co co coming ahead of him. He longed for there to be some other way. Have you ever been in a, have you ever prayed like that? We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness. We have one who has been in all of those agonizing moments. Can there please be some other way? It's almost hard to access that emotional space if you're not there. But when you have been there, can there please be some other way? Know that Jesus has been there. He models this journey through agony, but also this surrender. N.T. Wright says, Jesus was like a man in a waking nightmare. He could see as though it was before his very eyes the cup. Not the cup he had spoken of and given them to, dr to drink in the intense and exciting atmosphere of the Last Supper an hour or so before. This is the cup that he had mentioned to James and John. The cup the prophets had spoken of. The cup of God's wrath. Least favorite subject in all the scriptures. <laughs> wrath, God's judgment. Hate talking about these things. 
But Jesus seems in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane to be sensing the full consequences, the rippling out effect of our broken relationship with God and how it touches everything. How it it sizzles in our soul in insecurity and fear. How it rises up in in envy and lust. How it breaks out in war and injustice and racism and slavery. In in, in ignoring our neighbor. Like in in grudges in families. It's almost like you can see it just rippling out across human history. And just like frame after frame. The consequences of our brokenness with God. And, and I'm, let's be honest, there's, there really is very little we want to talk about less than God's wrath. But can you imagine a parent who doesn't respond in anger when their children are hurt? Who, who, who doesn't react negatively to the damage that his children are, are facing? We don't have time to go into all of it, but when, when we hear about God's wrath being described and, and What Jesus is looking at in the Garden of Gethsemane is the cup of God's wrath that he's about to drink on our behalf. God's wrath is described as basically our separation from God. So if God is the source of life and sin in its most basic sort of format is to separate yourself from God, you're separating yourself from God's character and God's way, then you're separating yourself from the source of spiritual life. And so what comes into that vacuum is death. And so when the Bible says the wages of sin is death, it's literally saying like a natural law in the world, like gravity or thermodynamics, when you break with God, what comes into that reality is death. And the outflow of that rippling across the world is, 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 the, is the brokenness of our separation. Jesus is looking at that reality. It's also described as God sometimes, and this is like the passive wrath of God, allowing us to go our own way. God essentially will say to us, like, I want you to learn to say your will be done. But if you insist on saying my will be done, God will say to you, okay. And that, that separation. It, there are times when God, God's wrath is about stopping a certain evil that has gone on long enough. It's described in those terms. Enough is enough. His wrath is sometimes described when someone becomes utterly calloused to mercy. And whatever all these varying facets, Jesus is looking at the cup and saying, please let there be some other way. But then ultimately he says, your will be done. And he is willing to drink the cup for us. Jesus sees what our break with God has cost, what it will cost to repair. But he is loving enough to bear the cup himself so we do not have to bear it. One of my, I don't know, things my brain has returned to and hearts has returned to over the years many times is what on earth gets Jesus up off his knees in this prayer time? Like, how does he get up and go? And like, you can imagine like the first discouragement when you catch your buddies asleep, the second, the third, and finally it's like, all right, they're here to get me. Like, what gets him up? There's not a ton said about it. You know, we, we can believe like the temptation that, that maybe he experienced the ministry of heaven as he's pouring out his heart in prayer. But Hebrews gives us a slight commentary on this moment. In Hebrews 12, it says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Do you want to know what got Jesus Christ off his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane? 
the joy set before him. Do you know what constitutes that divine joy? Redemption. <laughs> Bringing you into the family. Saying over everything that's, that you've done wrong or that's been done to you, every wound, lie, idol, addiction, brokenness that's come into your life, it is removed, you are healed, you are, you are loved, delighted in, forgiven. The, the joy set before him was bringing you and I into the family. Jesus says to the Father, can you please remove me from this agony and yet your will be done. And at the, at the heart of that will is the joy set before him. So one of the prayers for us is can we, can we pray like Jesus in that way? Can you pray your will be done? Knowing that God you're saying that to is the same God who is willing to endure this sorrow, this agony, this cup of judgment in order to make you family, to forgive your sins, to fill you with his life and spirit, to give you a full share in his renewal of the world. Your will be done. Last moment is Jesus on the cross, and we've been looking at how Jesus prays. He prays uh, at least three times on the cross. Uh, we're going to look at this a good, uh, you know, good Friday again, but the three prayers of Jesus on the cross I want you to see are, Father, forgive them. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And into your hands I commit my spirit. This is how Jesus prays as he's dying. Father, forgive them. <laughs> on the cross, Jesus is offering forgiveness. And you know what? <laughs> the thief on the cross is one of my favorite stories ever because it totally rips away any, any religiosity from the, from the story. Like, how long do you have to go to church to be welcomed into paradise with, with, the, with the king? How, how many prayers do you have to say? How long do you have to tithe? How many trips, mission trips do you need to go on? How many groups do you need to serve with? He said, like, remember me. That was his, his sinner's prayer. That's how far he got. He's being executed for crimes. <laughs> he says, remember me, and, and he's, he's welcomed into the kingdom. Father, forgive them. On the cross, Jesus is forgiving. Not just those who live well and those who say the right prayers. He is forgiving his enemies. He is forgiving those who have just nailed him to the cross. Let's never forget at the heart of our faith is a man who's, who's dying and pronouncing forgiveness over his enemies. How does that shape our approach to the world? And then maybe one of the most agonizing moments ever. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is experiencing abandonment. Looking for help and it is not there. I think this is the true cup of wrath that was causing him to sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. Yeah, the physical stuff... Uh, we know Mel Gibson uh, you know, made a movie about that part. <laughs> but it's impossible to depict the spiritual reality of Jesus you know, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Wrenched loose from the communion of the Father, which he had known uninterrupted forever. Jesus is experiencing abandonment so that you never have to. Jesus is experiencing abandonment 
so that you never have to. Not in the most fundamental sense that he is, that, that your heavenly father would never turn away from you, that you know your future involves a welcome, a rich welcome into his kingdom, that no matter what this world throws at you, even if it throws everything all the way down to the cross, that you never have to pray, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because Jesus was forsaken on the cross so that you and I can be family with God forever and ever sealed by the Holy Spirit. Jesus prays this on the cross so you never have to. And then finally, into your hands I commit my spirit. Again, Jesus on the cross saying, your will be done. In his very last moment, you think about integrity. All the way down to the very last cell. Going quiet. Into your hands I commit my spirit. So, final week, we have Jesus weeping over death. His friend Lazarus, his city, we have him praying for us that you would know union with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and unity with one another. And then we have him stepping in to bear the, cross, the, the cost. And it didn't slip up on him. He knew it was coming. He literally had to wait through an agonizing night, knowing it was approaching. And yet he said to the Father, your will be done. And then he's loving us to death and back, forgiving his enemies on the cross. I said this before, but I want you to hear it again. I believe Jesus wants to do the ministry of gathering this morning. That he wants to invite some of you to receive this love. And it may be for the very first time that you're receiving this love. And it may be for the five millionth time that you're receiving this love. But I believe Jesus wants to do that hen gathering this morning. That there are some who have been under the influences of sages of doubt And God wants to wake you up, wants to break the spell, wants to call you back to life and healing. I want to invite you to a remarkably simple response. The Psalms, the Lord's Prayer, these are articulations of faith that we can put in our mouths and offer back to God if they they match what is happening in our heart. And I want to just give you some words of faith this morning to respond to Jesus moving towards you to gather to himself. I'm going to put them on the screen. Lord Jesus, I receive your love. I accept your mercy. Forgive me for going my own way. Give me your life and salvation. Come into my life and fill me with your Holy Spirit. I trust you. May your will be done. I'm going to give some moments of silence. Again, it might be the first time or it might be the millionth time, but I believe some of you, some of us, are invited to experience the gathering ministry of Jesus on this Palm Sunday by praying this prayer. Let's take a moment of silence.
this prayer reflects the reality of your heart, I just invite you to pray it along with me. Lord Jesus, I receive your love. I accept your mercy. Forgive me for going my own way. Give me your life and salvation. Come into my life and fill me with your Holy Spirit. I trust you. May your will be done. Amen. Heavenly Father, come Holy Spirit. Minister to us now as we receive the meal of peace. As we receive the ministry of your gathering. As we respond in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, we are going to come to the table now. And as we prepare our hearts as we do every week, I want to invite you to consider one other moment of Jesus on the cross. This is in John 19, and it says, Later, knowing that everything had now been finished so that Scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Can't miss his humanity as he's dying. A, a, a jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked it, a, a sponge in it. They put the sponge on a stalk on the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received a drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. To Telestai, it is finished. The word was used to declare that a debt had been paid, that a prison sentence had been, had been served, that someone was free to travel through the country. Their, their papers would be stamped with this word. It is finished. It is accomplished. It has been paid. Jesus cries out on the cross, arms spread wide, nailed to this spot. It is finished. Nothing more is necessary for you and I to be gathered into the family of God than what Jesus has done on the cross. You do not need to add a single thing to the blood of Jesus in order to receive redemption. That's gospel, church. And we can know a hint of it, and we can grow into it for forever. And this meal is part of how we are nourished in that journey. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the bread and the cup, and I thank you for what this meal represents, your broken body, your shed blood, the reality that it is finished. Minister to us, Holy Spirit, as we receive this meal today, as we pray for one another, as we respond to your invitation to union. In Christ's name, amen.